0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you'll please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And while you are standing, turn into your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be in Philippians chapter 3 as Pastor Bruce starts a new series today. Starting in verse 1, reading through verse 3. And if you need a Bible, feel free to use the Pew Bible on page 1165, 1165. Follow along with me as I read Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus And put no confidence in the flesh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning and we do worship you. Father, we worship you as Lord of all who is reigning. And we give you praise and give you honor. Lord, And we confess. We confess as individuals. We confess as a church that our flesh is weak. So Lord, we ask this morning that you speak to each of us here. Lord, reveal yourself to us. In your name I pray, amen.
1: Well, I'm super excited today as we begin a brand new sermon series on Philippians chapter 3. We're simply calling it Don't Waste Your Life. And I can see from all the red in the audience this morning that uh, we're super excited about the chief season starting today. But I want to begin not with a football illustration, but rather with a baseball illustration that focuses on one particular baseball player that I'm sure most of you are familiar with, and that is Cal Ripken Jr. For those who might not know, he played for the Baltimore Orioles for 21 seasons, and during that time, he hit more home runs than any other shortstop in baseball history. Cal Ripken Jr. won two MVP awards. Back in 1995, Ripken captured the heart of the nation when he broke Lou Gehrig's 60-year-old record of playing in 2,130 consecutive games. He went on to play in 2,632 straight games. He played proficiently when others have long since retired, and he established a record that will likely stand forever. But what's ironic about the Hall of Famer, Cal Ripken Jr., is that he almost didn't even survive the big leagues. When he first came up in the majors in 1981, he was mired in a horrible, horrible batting slump that threatened to end his career before it even really took off. Of further interest in irony is the fact that Ripken ended up his playing days on October 7th, 2001, in a 2-for-48 batting skid. That is an average of .042, which is not good. That week, Richard Hoffer summarized Ripken's career as forthillorated with this quote. He says, maybe what mattered was what happened in between. Maybe what mattered was what happened in between. That is, between the beginning of his career and the end of his career. The Bible confirms this truth of Mr. Hoffer's observation as well. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 7 For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. The bottom line is this it's the in between that counts. We all begin the same at birth. We arrive in this world somewhat kicking and screaming and naked and empty-handed, and we all leave this world empty-handed. We take nothing with us. It's the in-between. It's how we live between birth and death that counts. Now, the question that I want us to wrestle with in this series is this. What are you doing with your in between Are you wasting your in-between, or are you making it count? Don't waste your life, is what Paul tells us here in Philippians chapter 3. And when Paul tells us this, he tells us from his own personal testimony. And basically what he says here in the beginning is that if you're a Christian, then God redeemed your life by His grace to make it count for God's glory. So many people waste their lives pursuing meaningless, trivial things that won't matter in eternity. But God longs to redeem men and women whose lives will count for His glory. Several years ago, there was a study done on the top three regrets of 95-year-olds. Quite interesting, they asked 50 people aged 95 or older this important question. If you could live your life again, what would you do differently? The question was left open-ended, and a variety of answers poured in. And after analyzing the results, three answers emerged to the top. Number one, if you could do it all over again, they said, I would reflect more. Number two, they said, if I could do it all over again, I would risk more. Number three, they said, if I could do it all over again... I would do more things that would live on after I'm dead. All three answers are saying the same thing. If I could do it all over again, I would live my life in such a way to make my life count. And what we're going to see here in this series is that the only way to truly make your life count is to know Christ and to live for His glory. This was the Apostle Paul's purpose in life. He he tells us this in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, where he writes, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, Paul's whole purpose in life was to make it count for God's glory this word count it's an interesting word it actually occurs uh three different times here in verses seven and eight in our chapter of philippians three it's the key word in fact here in philippians three count it means to assess means to evaluate in this particular case we're assessing and evaluating our lives in whether or not it is counting for God's glory. This is what Paul's doing by testimony, as he tells us here in Philippians 3. In fact, he says in verses 7 and 8, "...but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish." in order that I may gain Christ. And so this is Paul. He's stepping back, and he's evaluating his life. He's giving us a picture. He's telling us his personal testimony of what it means to be a Christ follower who is making their life count for the glory of God. So where do we start in this process? Where do you start in making your life count for God's glory? Well, Paul tells us here in the first three verses of Philippians chapter 3. And that's what I want us to look at in the remainder of our time here. I want us to unpack that, discover this, Paul's three answers to where do you start. And what we see right off the bat here, number one, is we start by rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, for it serves as a safeguard against wasting your life. Look what Paul writes again in verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, that word, finally, kind of makes it sound like Paul's wrapping up his letter here. However, he's only at the halfway mark in the book of Philippians. Yes, he has written 60 verses in chapters 1 and 2, but he still has 40 more verses to write in verses 18 three and four before he concludes and so as you can imagine this word finally has kind of been the source of a lot of humor at the expense of preachers like myself such as when a little boy whispered to his father in church daddy what does the preacher mean when he says finally to which his father muttered absolutely nothing son now i know there's a 12 o'clock deadline this morning especially so i will finally try to wrap this up before then Actually, the word finally here could be translated furthermore or so then. So it doesn't mean that Paul has run out of things to say. Finally means that he's signaling to his readers in the letter he's writing to in in us here today by application, that he is about to move on to a new point on the same theme. Paul is saying, in other words, furthermore... Or, so then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, those words from anybody else would sound rather shallow. But when they come from the guy who has experienced all kinds of persecution and who is actually writing this letter from jail, they are very profound words when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. In fact, the verb tense here indicates... That this is meant to be an ongoing activity on behalf of us as Christ followers. In other words, we are to constantly rejoice in the Lord no matter what. All this tells us something about joy in the Lord. It tells us that joy has much less to do with what's going on around us and much more to do with what's going on inside of us. It's what's inside of you that brings joy. That's why Paul says rejoice where? In the Lord. When the Lord is the source of your joy, you can rejoice no matter what's going on around you. Joy was Paul's outlook in life because the Lord was his uplook in life. Joy, in other words, is the product of my relationship with the living, loving Lord of the universe. He is the source an object of our joy, not if the chiefs win today or lose. And I know we all be happier if they win. I agree with you, but in the bottom line, in the bigger picture, that is not the source of joy. And so no matter what's going on around you, what's happening with other family members, friends, neighbors at work, no matter what, we can rejoice. In fact, this is the command that Paul's telling us. Paul goes on to add in verse 1, he not only says, finally, my brothers rejoiced in the Lord, he then says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Now, what is safe? Well, what Paul says in verse 2, obviously, where he says, look out for the dogs, that is safe for us, and we'll get to that here in a moment. But also, What is safe for us is what Paul just got through saying here in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. And he has written about both of these things because they're the same side of the coin previously, already. In fact, these same things are some of Paul's exhortations to rejoice during affliction, suffering for the sake of the gospel. And Paul doesn't mind, he says, repeating them. He says, it's no trouble for me to repeat this to you. In other words, he's like a good teacher. He repeats this. He's like a good parent. And most of us, we know, we repeat often to our kids the things that are safe for them. And Paul's now doing the same thing. And basically, he's saying, listen, I've already commanded you to rejoice, but you need to understand that rejoicing in the Lord is literally your safeguard. And so I want to repeat it again for your safety, for your spiritual well-being. This means a, a joyful Christian actually has a defense system built around his or her heart and mind. You say, well, how's that? Well, as Christ followers, we simply cannot be complaining and at the same time rejoicing in the Lord. And so if we're rejoicing in the Lord like we should, it will curtail our complaining. It's simply impossible to do both at the same time. And another reason a joyful spirit here protects you is because it's also impossible to be finding your joy in the Lord and at the same time trying to find joy in other things like sin or the things of the world as we're going to see next Sunday. It's impossible to do both, which is why rejoicing in the Lord, Paul says, is a safeguard against wasting your life. This word safe, it comes from a word that that means to keep you from tripping up or stumbling or, or even losing your stability. You see, Paul's passion is for Christ followers like us. To stand firm in the Lord and to stand firm in His gospel so that we will make our lives count for God's glory. And Paul understands something here. He understands that rejoicing in the Lord is a key component to that. You want to make your life count? Rejoice in the Lord, in other words. Paul knows the two go hand in hand. Rejoice in the Lord even rejoicing in the gospel and what it provides us. Why? Because it serves as a safeguard against all manners of dangers, especially what Paul now begins to talk about in verse 2, against those who would attempt to undermine our faith in the gospel. This truth is stated in Nehemiah 8.10, where Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, it's your safeguard in this world in which we live. The Puritan Matthew Henry put it this way, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. So rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. Why? Because he knows that it serves as a safeguard against wasting your life. And as we rejoice in the Lord, we must also, number two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. That is, avoid those who deny that Jesus is enough. Look what Paul writes here in verse 2. Look at it again. He says, look out for the dogs. Some of your translations, that word look out is translated as beware. It's the same idea, same meaning. Beware of the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Beware of the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is very strong language that Paul's using here. It's definitely not very politically correct. Three times Paul calls these religious zealots, false teachers, derogatory names. And three times he says, look out for them. Be aware of them. Be aware of these dogs. Be aware of these evildoers. Be aware of these mutilators of the flesh. And although it may appear that Paul is referring to three different groups of people, he's actually describing the same group of false teachers who were commonly known as Judaizers. And you're like, who is a Judaizer? What is a Judaizer? Well, they are simply Jewish zealots false teachers who insisted that circumcision in particular and other works in general was necessary for your salvation. In essence, these Judaizers believed that Gentiles had to become Jews before becoming Christians. And specifically, it involved the act of circumcision and submitting to the Mosaic law. And so these Judaizers, we might think of them this way. They are people who simply mixed the grace of Jesus Christ with the law of the Old Testament and insisted that you needed both in order to be right with God. We read about them in Acts chapter 15. This is not the first time they've come on the scene. And in Acts 15 they were going around saying, in verse 1, saying to Gentiles who had heard the gospel and were believing in Jesus Christ for their salvation, they were saying to them, listen, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now let me tell you, that is not right. And the leaders of the church at that time, including Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter, They went and denied this claim and preserved the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they reaffirmed to these Gentile believers that, hey, salvation comes through Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. And so now here in the city of Philippi, written to the church at Philippi here, after Paul shares the gospel message of faith alone in Christ alone, here these Judaizers come on the scene. And they tell the church, hey, Paul's message is not good enough. What he's preaching about the gospel is not good enough for your salvation. And that makes these guys, these Judaizers, it makes them enemies of the gospel. They're enemies of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And now you can begin to see why a little bit here, why Paul is so righteously indignant, and he's downright ticked off. And so he warns and says, look out for these dogs who deny that Jesus alone is enough for your salvation. You buy into that false gospel, and you will end up wasting your life. By the way, if you're thinking about now, I'm so glad those days are long gone. We don't have people like that around here today in our world, in our culture. Man, you are wrong. Listen, in every generation, there is always people who have their list of rules to keep in order to be right with God. We have modern-day Judaizers among the church today. And so Paul's warnings to beware, to look out, are just as important today. Look at him. He gives three in particular. He says, first of all, look out for those who will spiritually harm you. When Paul says, look out for the dogs, he's talking about those who will spiritually harm you. Now, I know dogs are popular pets today and loved by most people. I have shared many times, I have two boxers, and I love my girls, my dogs. But in reality, dogs were despised by first century Israelites. In fact, in Paul's day... Dogs were nothing more than nasty, wild, and vicious animals. They were scavengers that, who roamed in wild packs and prowled around feeding on dead animals, filth, and garbage. They were vivid images of the, quote, unclean. In fact, you go to the Old Testament, and a dog came to represent all that was unclean and filthy. And over time, then the term dog was used as an insult for someone who was evil and dangerous. And these Judaizers, they often called the Gentiles dogs, since they viewed the Gentiles as unclean. But Paul states that basically, no, that's not right. A dramatic reversal has taken place in the lives of these Gentile believers through the work of Jesus Christ. And so now Paul uses this derogatory term that the Judaizers used for the Gentiles. Paul uses it now for the Judaizers. Why? Because Paul is basically saying, you guys are the ones who are perverting the gospel. You guys are the ones who are unclean. And the great irony of this rebuke is Paul is basically turning the tables on these false teachers and declares to them... You are the ones who have rejected God and his provision of salvation in my son, Jesus Christ. You are the ones who are leading people astray. You are the dirty dogs. And so in Paul's dictionary here, a dog is someone who will spiritually harm you. Why? Because that's what dogs did in those days. They were harmful and vicious. And so Paul says, look out for the dogs in making your life count for God's glory. The second warning he says, "Look out for those who will spiritually mislead you." Pa- Paul not only calls these Judaizers dogs, but he calls them evildoers. Why? Because their mission in life was evil, not good. That would have been a slap in the face to these Jewish leaders who prided themselves on doing righteous deeds in living righteous lives and even though they thought they were doing the right thing by demanding that these gentile believers submit to the law by being circumcised they were in fact guilty of the very opposite you see what they were doing is adding works to faith as a requirement for salvation and by doing that paul says they were actually engaged in what is evil You see, they prided themselves on their own self-righteousness due to their obedience to the law of Moses. But in reality, all they were doing is replacing salvation by faith alone in Christ alone with a false substitute that made obedience to the works of the law as their basis of earning God's favor. As a result, instead of doing good, They were guilty of doing evil by diminishing the very basis of grace and by denying the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. And in the process of that, what are they also doing? They're elevating themselves. They're elevating their own human effort. To earn God's favor by their own self-righteousness, which only leads to more pride and more evil. And so instead of leading people closer to God, Paul is basically saying, no, you are harming them. You are misleading them. You're driving them further away from God. Now, let me also say that as Christ followers, we do good works. We're commanded to. But not so that we can go to heaven. It is because we are righteous in Christ. By faith, God declares us righteous. And so because that is our standing before God, we are declared righteous, and because we are now going to heaven, what do we do? How do we live as Christ followers? We glorify God by living out a righteous life and by doing righteous deeds. And this, Paul says, this, that is what it means To make your life count for God's glory. Look out for the dogs. Why? Because they will spiritually harm you. Look out for these evil workers. Why? Because they will spiritually mislead you. There's one more. Paul says look out for those who will spiritually burden you. Paul says at the end of verse 2, Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now when Paul, what he's doing there is he's actually destroying the Judaizers' sense of pride because they put their trust in their own man-made relationship with God. You see, they were trusting in the physical ceremony of circumcision instead of in God's work of salvation in Christ. Now, to better understand what Paul's warning here, we need to understand a little bit of the background that circumcision was essential to the Jewish people beginning way back with Abraham in the book of Genesis. You see, circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's covenant with his people. And that's that's why every Jewish boy was circumcised on their eighth day. In fact, you read about that in, in, uh, I believe it's Matthew, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Every Jewish boy was. In fact, over time, the Jews would actually refer to one another as the circumcised. Hey, the circumcised. The circumcised. Why? Because every Jewish boy, this was was customary. This was who they are. But God, listen, circumcision was intended by God to graphically illustrate mankind's depravity. In other words, to graphically illustrate man's sinfulness. Why? Why? And so here's the deal. Man passes along his fallen sinful nature through the act of procreation. Passing along a fallen sinful nature to the next generation and the next generation. And so circumcision was simply the symbol picturing people's need to be cleansed from sin at the very deepest root of his being. But over the centuries, as you can imagine, the Jewish people, they lost The meaning of this mark, which pointed to the need for ultimate cleansing. And instead, they merely kept the ceremony alive, the ritual of it. And of course, this mark has now been fulfilled in Christ, who through the power of His Holy Spirit... He circumcises our hearts through the new birth. Why? Because it's our hearts that are sinful. It's our hearts that are deceptive. That's why we need to be born again. We need a new heart. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are, our hearts are circumcised. And so the need for a physical circumcision, as in the Old Testament, has now passed. It's no longer needed. But these Judaizers, listen, de- they were basically demanding that every Gentile you need to go through the act of circumcision, the ritual of it, the ceremony, in order to guarantee your relationship with God. But Paul comes on the scene, and he sets the record straight with them. He refers to them not with this normal word for circumcision, but with a different word that means physical mutilation. He calls these Judaizers mutilators of the flesh. Now, that's an interesting term. And it has, let me tell you, it packs a punch. Oh, does it pack a punch? Because that is the same word used of the false prophets of Baal, who were cutting their flesh and mutilizing, mutilating their bodies in order to gain attention of their false god, Baal. And so Paul is equating them, the Judaizers, to the false prophets of Baal. This is shocking language. Paul is effectively saying that their circumcision is as meaningless as the mutilation in pagan religions. In essence, these Judaizers were mutilating the very grace of God in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if I could boil down the core of these false teachers in one statement, it would be this. False religion and false teachers simply add a plus sign after the name of Jesus Christ. It isn't Jesus alone for them. It's Jesus plus works. And you can name any work that is. That's legalism at its core. And it steals your joy and it wastes your life by suggesting that God's love of you, God's acceptance of you, has to be earned through your works. In other words, legalism says that you better do more and you better be more than you already are in Jesus Christ. Sam Gordon described legalism this way. He says, legalism makes someone's opinion your obligation. It makes someone's tradition your burden. And so no wonder Paul says, listen, beware of people like that. Look out for those who will spiritually burden you. And so if we're going to make our lives count for God's glory, this is what we do, Paul says. First and foremost, we rejoice in the Lord. And by saying in the Lord, basically he is saying we rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in what God has provided for us in Jesus. That's what we rejoice in. It serves as a safeguard against wasting your life. And this, the flip side of the coin, this is who we look out for. We avoid those who deny that Jesus is enough, who diminish the grace of Jesus Christ, who mutilate the works of Jesus Christ. And now, Paul says, this is what we remember. Notice number three. Remember who you are. And who are we? We are sinners saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Look what Paul says to these believers in Philippi and to us by application in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, we first need to ask, what does Paul mean that we are the circumcision? Because it sounds like Paul just got through basically saying, we don't need the circumcision. That's a bad thing. And now he says, we are the circumcision. Well, we know that Paul's not referring to physical circumcision here because most of the Philippian believers Paul's writing to were who? They're Gentiles. They're uncircumcised Gentiles. They're like us. And so rather, Paul is referring now to The spiritual circumcision of a changed heart, not a circumcision of the flesh. And Paul is saying that those who trust in Christ are the true people of God. In his own terminology, he's saying we are the circumcision. Why? Because those who trust in Christ for their salvation, listen, they have been cleansed in their hearts. Not by some surgery of circumcision, but by the very sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul helps us to better understand what he's saying about circumcision, spiritually speaking, over in Romans chapter 2. In fact, I encourage you to turn there, Romans chapter 2, and notice what Paul writes in verses 28 and 29. Romans 2, 28 and 29, and Paul says this, "...for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God." And so when Paul says, we are the circumcision... He's identifying the Gentile believers as God's people because they, what has happened, they've undergone the circumcision of the heart by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, that's true for all of us here who are believers in Jesus Christ. We have undergone a circumcision of the heart, spiritually speaking. We are God's people through faith in Christ Regardless of any outward acts or rituals, be it circumcision or even baptism or anything else. Here's Paul's point. True circumcision that matters is that of the heart. And it's a matter of faith and grace from beginning to end. And then Paul goes on and what he does next in the remainder of verse 3 here is he emphasizes three different characteristics of those who are the true people of God. In other words, for our series, we could say it this way. He's emphasizing now three characteristics of those who are making their life count for God's glory. So what are those three characteristics? We'll notice it quickly here. First of all, we are the people who worship God first. That's the first characteristic of somebody who's going to make their life count for God's glory. They worship God first. And Paul says that's only possible by the Spirit of God that dwells within them. In like fact, Jesus tells us in John four twenty four, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. And so this means that the Spirit of God in order we need the spirit of god in order to truly worship god why for without the work of the holy spirit to cause us to be born again we won't be able to trust in christ and thus truly worship god now when paul says this uses this word worship he isn't speaking just what we do on a sunday morning gathering like today Our concept of worship is so limited to just this that we lose the significance and meaning of what Paul writes here and other places where the Bible talks about worship. And so worship is not just what we do in a Sunday morning gathering. Paul is also speaking of, quote, service here. He's talking about... A life that is fully devoted to the Lord in spiritual service. This is why worshiping God first is so much more than what you do on Sunday morning. Worshiping God first is about a life that is fully surrendered to God. Fully surrendered to the priority of God. To the mission of God between Sunday mornings. It's how we live during the week. That is worship. That is a life fully surrendered to God. By the way, that's a life that is making their, that's a life that counts for the glory of God. When we worship God first throughout the week, and then we gather together corporately as a body of Christ to celebrate all that, to be renewed in that truth, to affirm that truth, to rejoice in that truth. That's why both are important. And so, yes... This is included worship in song, worship in scripture reading, worship in prayer, worship in hearing the word of God preached. But it is also then it should lead and motivate to leave here and tomorrow through the rest of the week, we live a life fully surrendered to God. Why? We worship God first and foremost. That's the idea here. That's a life that's counting for the glory of God. And then second of all, Paul says, we're not only that, we are the people now who boast about Jesus most. Those who are redeemed by Jesus boast about Jesus most. We are people who understand that when you strip everything away, the only thing we have to boast about is our salvation. And the only person we have to boast in is none other than Jesus Christ. Paul said it like this in Galatians six fourteen. He says, but as for me, I will boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. And so we don't glory in our earthly status. We don't glory in our circumstances. We don't boast in our gifts. We boast in Jesus Christ. For salvation has come to us through his work on the cross. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, the one who boasts must boast in Jesus, he says. And so if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, but isn't making much of Christ, both verbally but more importantly through their life and how they live, Listen, you have reason to be suspicious of their claim. And they ought to be examining their heart of whether they have been truly circumcised by the, in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, have they been truly born again? You see, the Christian life, the life that counts for God's glory is Christ's exalting life. And so let me ask you a couple of questions Do you boast about Jesus around your family and friends? Do you use your influence, your platform, whether it's at school, whether it's in the neighborhood, whether it's at your job, to make much of Jesus and the gospel? Does your speech reflect a love for Jesus? Do your actions demonstrate a desire to bring glory to his name? Paul says here that the true people of God... The people who are making their lives count for his glory are people who boast about Jesus most. And then number three, he wraps it up and says, because it's the flip side of the coin here, we are people who trust in ourselves least. Why? Because we're sinners saved by grace through Jesus and faith. Therefore, Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. That is, we put no confidence in anything that is outside of Jesus Christ for our salvation. By the way, everyone here, everyone puts their confidence somewhere. The question is, where are you putting your confidence? Or in whom are you putting your confidence? As Christians... We put our confidence in Christ. Not in our own efforts, our own goodness. This is why we boast in Christ. It's why we rejoice in Christ. But the human heart is so prone to trust in ourselves instead of Christ, especially for salvation. But as Christians, we understand more than anybody else who we are a part of from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, when it comes to being accepted before a holy God, listen, we bring nothing to the table except ourselves. And let me tell you, ourselves at birth, we are sinners. We stand safely now and securely now before God solely because of the work of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not of your own doing, he says. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. In other words, boast in what we bring to the table. We boast in Jesus Christ and we trust in ourselves least. So where... Is your confidence. What will enable you to stand before God and receive His grace instead of His judgment? In what or in who are you trusting for your salvation? According to Paul, there's only one place to look. And that is Jesus Christ. And as Christ followers, Paul is reminding us here. He is imploring us not to forget this, but to remember this, that we are people who worship God first. We are people who boast in Jesus most. And we are people who trust in ourselves least. These, Paul says, are the characteristics of people who are making their lives count for the glory of God. And so as we close, here's the question. Here's the question to consider. This is the question to ponder in your heart. Do you want your life to count for God's glory? Or will you, God willing, come to the age of 95 and look back with regrets? Do you want to make it count? And the place to start is at the cross of Jesus Christ. By turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus to save you, and then living out the rest of your life for his glory. We start at the cross in making it count for the glory of God. Have you done that? Have you humbled yourself and repented of your sin, recognizing, I cannot save myself. I cannot earn the approval of God. I cannot stand in his presence. I cannot be with him forever and eternity all on my own i need jesus and what he's done on the cross and admitted that acknowledge that and then by faith ask jesus to see it starts at the cross in making your life count and by the way you can begin to make your life count for the glory of god whether you are 13 or whether you are 93 start wherever you're at wherever you are right now in life you can start You start at the cross with his forgiveness and with his gift of salvation. And then once we receive, once we are transformed, we begin to offer our lives, we give our lives over to service, we worship him first. Will you pray with me? Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, oh, how easy it is for us to say that we trust in Jesus. And yet to trust in ourselves or trust in something else or even to trust in Jesus plus something else. And as a result of that, we end up wasting our lives instead of making them count for your glory. And so, Lord, help us to see that we are sinners who are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. And help us to rejoice in the Lord, knowing that he is the source of our joy and that it serves as a safeguard against wasting our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Instrumentals are going to play through a chorus, and as they do, will you respond as God is leading?